in the very beginning of my landscaping career, I didn't have medical benefits. So I took a job at UPS loading trucks and I did the midnight shift. So I worked from oh, wow. 12 midnight to 8 a.m. Then I used to go do my landscaping business. I was sleeping in my car for a couple of hours each night in the parking lot of UPS. I did that for over a year and uh, it was just a crazy schedule. How does our definition of success shape how we live our daily lives? Join me, your host, Michael Bauman, as we learn from some of the top leaders and experts in the world, from CEOs to neuroscientists, Broadway directors, and more, about how to engineer success in every area of our lives. Welcome to Success Engineering. Hello, everybody. Whether you've been listening for a while or whether this is your first time here, we are happy to have you. Before we jump into the episode, it would be awesome if you could write a review for the show, especially on Apple Podcasts. So it takes less than a minute or two. It's pretty straightforward. So you click on the show, you scroll all the way down to the bottom, and there's a little button that says write a review. And as always, if there's an episode you really like, send it over to your friends. They'll probably like it too. Thank you so much. And let's get back to the show. So welcome back to Success Engineering. I'm your host, Michael Bauman. So I have Carl Gould on. He's a worldwide leading authority on business entrepreneurship. So he built three multi-million dollar businesses before the age of 40. And his current company, Seven Stage Advisors, has helped over 100,000 businesses around the world. So companies like Allstate, American Idol, U.S. Olympic track, IBM, McGraw-Hill, it just goes on and on. He has actually created the farthest reaching business mentoring uh, organization in the world. So he's trained, he's certified over 7,000 business coaches in 35 different countries, written multiple books. He has a best-selling, The Seven Stages of Small Business Success, and he actually co-authored Blueprint for Success with Stephen Covey. So pleasure to have you on the show. I'm really excited for this uh, conversation. I know you'll have a lot to add. Hey, Michael, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So first question, I'm just curious, what was it like growing up in a family with uh, 10 kids? Well, it's funny. uh, One of my best friends uh, is one of six kids. And I remember when I was a kid, I'm sitting with Chris and I'm like, and I said to him, I'm like, wow, you guys only have six. Like, what's up? (laughs) Like, what's wrong? Like, what happened? Why only six? I loved being part of a big family. And to me, it was a blast. I had there was always somebody to hang out with. There was always something to do. We we had a great time. And we as a kid unit, we till, to this day, we're very close. And so, you know, for me, and we're very close in age. And I happen to be the middle kid of, of 10. So my oldest sister is nine years older than me. My youngest sister is nine years younger than me. There were 10 kids within 18 year span. And oh. there was five boys and five girls. So we were, it, it, to me, it was a lot of fun. We, had, I had a lot of, I, I enjoyed being raised in a large family. <laughs> Your parents are uh, rock stars. First off, <laughs> you have like a whole basketball team, like a five on five basketball team. just in, in your Right family. out of the gate. <laughs> right out of the gate. It's built yeah, no in. Doubt. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what spurred you into getting into entrepreneurship. So you're in university and college, you're studying accounting and finance, paying your own way for that. And then you have this super bad leg injury that like puts you out for six months. Can you talk about that first? Like what happened? Like I'm curious is what leg injury actually puts you out of of school for that long. And then you end up dropping out of school. So can you give that backdrop um, for how that spurred you into entrepreneurship? 
Yeah, sure. So while I was uh, studying accounting and finance, and we used to play a lot of pickup football at school, the second last day of the semester, ironically, we went to the field next to the infirmary, the school's hospital. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I had a non-contact injury. I planted my foot, pivoted, and I felt a pop in my knee. And I thought, oh, like popped out and popped in, no big deal. Ironically, it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt at all. I kept playing on it. I felt another pop. Not good. That pop, I felt that pop. <laughs> and I said, guys, something's up. I'm going to walk inside. I'm going to have it checked out. The nurse looked at me, looked at it and said, I mean, it was so fresh, but she said, yeah, it looks like there's something going on here. She handed me a pair of crutches and said, why don't you take these with you? You might need them. And I remember carrying them all the way back a mile, walked a mile on this leg, all the way back to my dorm room. Within a couple of hours, my leg blew up like a balloon, went to the hospital. They took all sorts of fluids and blood off my knee. I, but still, they put an immobilizer on it, not much of anything. My leg was uh, straight, so I couldn't drive my car home, which was a, which is a manual transmission. <laughs> so a buddy of mine drives at home. I go to an orthopedic surgeon, and he was like, how, when did this happen? I'm like, oh, a day and a half ago. He's like, what? Immediately drained my leg, put, put my leg in a hip to ankle cast. I cracked my kneecap in half, tore ligaments, tore the cartilage, bruised a couple of the bones. He just, it was a mess. I had my leg in a straight leg cast for three full months and it came off at the end of March. And, and then after that, I went to physical therapy where they slowly, a little oh. at a time, were able to bend <laughs> my leg back. And it was just, it was horrible. So really, I was just learning to get literally back on my feet, learning how to walk again and all the way through June. But I had student loans. I was paying my way through school. So I had student loans, I had grants, I had scholarships. They all went away. And when you're out of school for six months, all of your student loans come due. So I pumped gas at a gas station a little bit, but had no money. It wasn't a pretty time by a long stretch. It was interesting how that makes you revisit your plan because I was, I just turned 19 years old and I'm like, what? WTF? Like what's going on here in my life? And it was a big turn of events, you know? Yeah. So I'm curious. I mean, sometimes turns of events like that can just like put people out, right? So you have this plan, you have your plans, pick up football with your buddies, like you have this life and then all of that goes away very quickly. So for a lot of people that can put them into like a really, you know, dark, difficult time. And maybe it did for you, but you took that and actually goes, I want to start a landscaping company. Like how did you work through that? And even on the financial side, like, what did you do to go, I need this money to start this company? What did that look like? Yeah. So I had done landscaping installation work throughout high school. I knew how okay. to do it. As a matter of fact, in high school, my boss at the time used to send me out to, he sent me out one time to present a proposal to somebody. And not only did the person accept the proposal, I didn't realize that the second part of the list were options. And they bought all of those too. And so <laughs> my boss sent me out and said, well, I'm sending you out to do these things from now on. <clears throat> so I was giving proposals. And then, so I'm laying there in bed. I'm like, wait a minute. So he used to send me out to do the proposals. And then when I was done, he would say, okay, the Smith family or this building, they're ready, go do it. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm giving the proposals, doing the pricing, doing the installation. The only thing I'm not doing is collecting the money and getting the leads. So I'm sitting there uh, laying in bed 
literally saying, you know, <clears throat> I start to see the loan bills coming in and I said, all right, what I need money. All right. And I need more money than I can make just pumping gas a little bit here or doing that. I need to make enough money to, if I'm going to go back to school, to go back to school, if I'm going to ever move out of my house. I need money for an apartment, all this stuff. So I was 19 years old. I'm like, well, what do I know how to do? And I said, well, I made pretty good money in landscaping. I had a, uh, I, I needed a, uh, a new car. <clears throat> so I said, I'll buy a little pickup truck and I'll buy a little pickup truck, a wheelbarrow, shovels, hand tools. I, I did, like I said, I didn't have a lot of money. So I bought the car new because that allowed me to finance it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to start going to family and friends and my network and find out, can I get any projects? And so I landed a couple of projects. They went well. And, you know, as I learned, when you do a good job for this one person, people on either side and across the street, they call it the nine, the two <laughs> houses on either side and the five across the other side of the street. Those somebody in that nine will see you. So I get another job and someone in that nine will see me. And then I get a couple of referrals. So that first year I had some success by doing a couple of projects that I knew a friend of mine had done some landscaping on the side as well. He introduced me to someone who owned a garden center. And so if somebody needed a couple of plantings or something small done, I was one of the people they referred me to. And so I just built off of that base and I can't tell you I had some great dreams of becoming a landscape contractor by any stretch. <laughs> well, one of the things that I really enjoyed was I had for the first time in a long time, some direction and some purpose. I mean, if you think about it, I wasn't able to finish school, broke my leg. I'm out of school, out of money, in debt, no prospects, wasn't feeling great about myself. All of a sudden, I'm now doing something where I feel I'm good at, I'm being successful at it. I'm doing projects. People are happy. I've got some cash. And um, all of a sudden, it looked like things were falling in place. And I realized that I could just hustle my way to a good living. And, and so that kind of put me on the path. And I said, of all the things I've done, I think other aside from sports, entrepreneurship, not even landscaping, but entrepreneurship seemed to be a very enjoyable path for me. Yeah. And so you end up doubling this business every year for the next um, seven years. Every year for seven <laughs> years. Yeah. Which is pretty extraordinary to begin with. I mean, you talked about that role of relationships and network and things at that period. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how relationships are crucial to business. And then also, I'm curious, in that period of time, did you have somebody that was mentoring you or were you just, like you said, just hustling your way to the success that you had at that point? Yeah, I had some mentors later in my career, but in the beginning, I was really just figuring it on my own. Although I had some assistance from my sister who loaned me some money so I could buy some equipment. My one uncle was in construction, so he gave me a few thoughts, although he was in construction and I was doing landscaping. And I had people who were supportive. My older brother had a contracting company, so there were some times when I may have worked with him to make some extra money, or he may have known somebody who needed a project. As a matter of fact, my brother was doing a lakefront project and and he knew somebody who needed a retaining wall. On, and so there were people that were helping me. I don't want to make it sound like it was on my own <laughs> at all. So I wouldn't have done being able to do it without them. But as far as like business strategy, what to charge, how to do, I didn't know enough to ask. It was in such the early days of coaching that it really, it wasn't the business that it is today. And so I was really trying to find my own way and trying to glean as much as I could from friendly competitors. It was very much trial and error for me. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. And so, I mean, you end up after the seven years, you actually transition to a construction company that then you grow for 12 years to over a million dollars with that one. Can you talk about one, one, just like the transitions, and this might be a good time too, to even get into the stages of kind of business growth and business success that you have worked through in many businesses that you have? What did that look like to grow and scale those businesses? Yeah. So I would say that I, I define growth and scale as two total, total, two totally different terms. And so growth to me, just being as busy as possible, doing as much work as possible. And, but it, it does require the owner operator to be involved and have a hand in all of that. And that, and very much so in my landscaping business, it was a growth exercise. <laughs> I did not scale that business. Although there were some things that I did that were scalable, I didn't really scale that business. And that's what ultimately got me because I became exhausted. I mean, I was working very intensely during that time, right? It was six days a week. It was 10 hours a day, sometimes seven. And I was, and in the very beginning of my landscaping career, I didn't have medical benefits. So I took a job at UPS loading trucks and I did the midnight shift. So I worked from oh, wow. 12 midnight to 8 a.m. Then I used to go do my landscaping business. I did that for over a year and oh. uh, it was just a crazy schedule when I think back on it. I was sleeping in my car for a couple of hours each night in the parking lot of UPS. And then uh, I would nap maybe at lunchtime now and again, but it was crazy schedule. But when I got to construct my contracting company, I, I started building single family homes, small subdivisions. I had a custom home building side of the business. And that was a little bit more scalable because I used subcontractors. I was more project management. I did self-perform some of the work, but I also had subcontractors who did the work as well. So there was more scale in that. And that's my definition of scalability. Is it a process-driven business that does not require the owner's day-to-day -day activities? And to some degree, that was the case. I, I still, like I said, self-performed some of the work, but I was using more scalable processes and systems in that business. And I got to the end of the landscaping business and I started to realize I'm working hard and my average sale was like $50,000. Good size project. Don't get me wrong. What is 50 grand? And I'm like, all right, I know people who are building homes. Their average job is 300,000, 500,000, 700,000. Hmm. Maybe if I'm working equally as hard, but the jobs are 10 times the size. Mm. And there was a guy who was a builder in my area who was a, a really nice guy. He, I did a lot of landscaping work for him. And he said, well, he didn't, wasn't a coach or, or, or a mentor per se. He did share a lot of what it was like as a builder. And he did say at certain times, like, yeah, Carl, he goes, your problem is you're on the wrong side of the transaction. <laughs> you're being hired. He goes, I buy the property. I build the house. If I don't like the person I'm working with. I just don't sell them the house. I'll sell mm. it to somebody else. And I'm like, yeah, I could see the allure of that. Having a little bit more control over the model, who I worked with. And to a large degree, that was the case. I enjoyed that part. So I did that from 92 till about 2004 when I sold the company. I enjoyed that business. I grew up in it because construction was on both sides of our family. But it what neither the landscaping business or the construction company were really my passion. That came more th through the coaching work that I was doing all through the 90s. Yeah. Talk about that. That was kind of my next question is like, how did you discover? I mean, it sounds like you discovered you're like, I am really good at this entrepreneurship thing. I do it really well. I thrive in it. How did you discover that passion for the coaching? Yeah. So I went to a personal development seminar in 1990. As a matter of fact, 
prior to that, a friend of mine was trying to research a number of seminars that she wanted to go to. And I said, oh, I'll help you do a little research. And in 1989, I said, oh, well, there's this guy, Tony Robbins, who seems to be doing some cool things. I said, a little weird. He does seminars at his house, but all right, whatever. (laughs) And so she went to a series of his seminars. She's like, that was really good. And so I went to one of his seminars in 1990. I also took courses in NLP and and other peak performance sciences. And I'm like, wow, I really like the personal development side. I really like working with somebody to help them discover and formulate what their goals and desires are and then work with them to help them achieve it. And I really, I'm like, wow, this, this, I like this a lot. This is a lot closer to my passion than, than doing the work that I was doing. So while I had this landscaping company and while I had this construction company, I got certified as a coach and I was working as if there was such a thing as a side hustle at the time. That was my side hustle. Mine was coaching. And nobody had heard of this business before, this practice. When I told people I was a coach, they're like, really? What sport? Like, no, personal coaching. Like, what are you talking about? But I really enjoyed it. Uh, the problem was, is that there weren't a lot of systems and there weren't a lot of, there weren't a lot of methods and there was a lot of concepts. There was a lot of ideas. There were a lot of philosophies out there, but not a lot of methodologies. And so when I first started coaching, I started documenting everything I was doing. I'm like, well, how do you run a session? How do you run an engagement? How do you re-enroll somebody? How do you do all these things? And so I, I wrote down and was using something at the time that I called the milestones methodology and uh, which later became the seven stages of uh, business success. Yeah. Let's get into that. You have these incredible stages for entrepreneurs. So let's say the first question I actually have around that is let's say an entrepreneur has their business like you, you were talking about, right? Maybe it's landscaping, maybe it's something else and they might be performing well at it, but it's not actually lighting them up. It's not actually like this really, I have passion around this. So how do you go about helping those entrepreneurs go, what is the thing that I do really well, my unique ability, my secret sauce, whatever you want to call it, and then leveraging that to create either the business or the life that they want to live? Yeah. So this is an often debated subject. Should you do your passion? And I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that says, just because you love to surf, you should open a surf shop because they're so far away from each other. If you love surfing and you want to do a surf shop, go ahead and do it. But those two do not even resemble each other. Right. They are not running a business and <laughs> having a passion about something are two totally different things. So here's what I've learned over the years. We tend to like what we're good at. We tend <laughs> yeah. to be good at what we like. The better we get at it, the more we like it. So what I, what I do with people is I said, look, you got to like it enough to want to put up with the BS that goes with this business. It's hard to hate your job and do your job. So the people that say to me, like, and I got to tell you, most of the people that I know, especially early in their career, they're not doing their passion. Right. They're doing what they're good at. They're doing what they have a propensity for. If you look at the, you know, someone like Michael Jordan, who's the, one of the greatest basketball players ever, his favorite sport was baseball. If he had <laughs> the choice, he'd have played baseball. He didn't do what his passion was. He tried right? He wasn't that good at it, right? <laughs> he didn't do what his passion was. He did what he was. A good friend of mine, John Coyle, who's a Olympic silver medalist for the USA speed skating team. His passion was bike riding, but he's a better <laughs> speed skater. He, if he had his right. choice, he'd be doing that, right. right? But he's better at speed skating. I think in business and in life, you find what you're good at, 
You find something you like enough to be willing to do it 8, 10, 12 hours a day. It's hard to hate your job and grow your job, hate your business and grow your business, right? I didn't like, it's not that I didn't like landscaping and construction, but it wasn't my passion. I was good enough at it to do it for 20 years, right? Right. But there came a point where I'm like, nah, I'm out of here, right? Now, I can't tell you I had a passion for coaching. I just liked it. I realized I was good at it. And the more I got better at it, the more I liked. And so, so I'm here to help you get the most out of your skill set. And what I found, because some people will come to me and say, you got to help me get out of this business. I hate it. It effing sucks. I don't want to do it anymore. You got to get me out of this thing. And so we start working on it and the business is running better and better. And they're like, eh, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> I don't think I hate this business as much as I thought I would because they're good at it. Right? right. So find what you're good at. We all have a set of skills. We all, all have a disposition towards certain things. And underneath what we do mechanically every day, there is a core competency that we have. Right. And that core competency can allow you to do a number of different things. Right. And as long as you like it enough and you're really good at it, you'll do it for a career. What I find later in life, people will say to me, I want to write a book. I want to speak. I want to do a podcast. I want to become a coach because they want to give back. There's that urge to give back and help others and return the favor of what happened to them. Then people will go towards their passion project. But people are not abandoning what they do well and what's making them a lot of money to go to their passion project. Their passion project almost always does not deliver the grand, the grand economic benefit. It's something else that they that has a business structure around it that they can monetize, that they like enough to do. They make their money there. Then they go do their passion. Find your passion. Eh. Find what you're good at, that you enjoy, that contributes back to society, that you feel you can make a real impact in and go for that. Yeah, yeah, I I really appreciate that that differentiation there cuz like you talked about even doing that allows you the freedom to then down the road per- pursue something different. You have a lot of boots on the ground experience going what is it that I'm actually good at and it's stress tested and then you've built it to the point where now you can go okay do I want to pursue something else or is this really what's fulfilling yeah. me and do them in parallel and then maybe navigate across if that's what you want or like you mentioned right Maybe it's just because your business isn't doing well that you don't really enjoy it. And then once it's doing well, you're like, no, oh, this is actually not that bad. So talk about, let's talk, dive into the seven stages that you have. And this is along the scalability side, like you talked about. So sure. the different stages of business and then potentially some of the common kind of pitfalls or maybe mistakes that people make in each of those stages. Yeah, sure. So there are seven stages. And what I started to do was, I'm writing down everything that I'm doing with my clients and I'm starting to notice certain patterns. I, I coached an executive from IBM and I coached somebody who had a $200,000 a year printing company. And I started to notice that the personality of the business started to mirror the personality of the owner, right? So how, if the owner was strong in a certain area, the business was strong in a certain area. If the owner was weak or had a blind spot in one area, the business had a blind spot in that same area. And so I said, okay, well, that's interesting. So that led me to understand the parallel between the leadership attributes and the business attributes and that there was overlap. But also I realized, wait a minute, there seems to be a sequence here and everyone that I'm working with, and it's well over a hundred thousand now, 
that you got to start somewhere. You got to go to the next step. You got to go to the step after that. And everyone who seemed to skip these steps, that's where the problems lie. As much as I wanted it to be, we came, we saw, we conquered the three. I wanted it to be three. I kept coming back. I'm like, no matter how thin I slice this, it's seven, right? <laughs> so stage one is strategic planning where you get all the great ideas out of your head and onto paper. It's an academic exercise. You don't have any clients yet. You're looking to launch a division of your business or the business overall, but you got to make it compelling and inspiring so you can attract the right people. Then you go to stage two. You automatically go to stage two as soon as you get a, a paying client. You can't stay at stage one. That's the only, basically the only rule of the game. You go to stage two is the specialty stage where an expert or a thought leader or an authority is born. And here you need to be the sharpest tool in the shed. Highest credential, know your stuff, walk in a room and have your peers say, that person is an expert. That person's a badass. They're a rock star. You need to be recognized in your industry by your peers as an expert. The awards I'm most proud of in my career are the ones that were peer reviewed, mm. right? So my competition said, you're the best, mm. right? That's something I'm most proud of. One thing I'm most proud of. So now it's important to become a thought leader because you, you need the most flexibility in your pricing strategy as possible. In other words, the ability to go as low as you want and have like, and be able to upsell and then high as you want. So you can have a premium product because the further you are to the low end and the high end, the more you'd be perceived as an expert because pricing is a language and pricing tells the world your level of quality. If you're in the middle, middle of the road quality. If you're at the, uh, ironically, if you're at the top or the bottom, all the way at the bottom, meaning the lowest price, like Walmart. Walmart is known as an expert. The world scratches their head and says, how do they do this? How do they bring you all that product for that, that lower price? Google is free. How in the world do they bring you the world's library for free? Well, they're smarter than us. That's why, because they're Google. That's why they're Google, right? And then if you're the highest price, people say, wow, they must be good if they can charge. So pricing-wise, you got to be near the bottom, near the top. That leads us to stage three, which is the synergy stage. And that's where a team is born. You're so busy, you're, an, you're a thought leader, you're an expert, you're in demand. So people say, hey, we got to work with each other and uh, work together. And so you get your operational and implementation team that is totally in line with your mission, vision, values, purpose at stage three. Those are your growth stages. Then we go to stage four is the systems stage where an ecosystem or a business is born because you decide on what kind of business you want to be at that point, right? So stage one, it's just up, you're in the planning stage. Stage two is the owner operator, the musician, the consultant, the lawyer, the accountant. Stage three is when you build the law firm, the accounting firm, the real estate firm, the real estate agency, where you have a common name, but you're really individual contributors under the same roof. Stage four, you start, you're, you're more of a corporate business that can now scale. So think of a company like Apple. Apple went out of its way to be a closed system. They are a stage four company. You can be as big as you want at any stage, starting with start stage four. Stage five, is called sustainability. And this is when you can really begin to scale your business. So stage five, think of a franchise. You're well known for you, not just your utility of your product and service, but something else. Like Starbucks is known for the experience. 
McDonald's is known for convenience and uh, convenience of location and food, right? And good tasting food, right? They're known for something other than what their core of their business. The Virgin companies are known for being irreverent and being the <laughs> high touch, high customer service in, in whatever niche they're in, right? So think of a franchise, multi-unit, multi-location, you know, anything. Stage six is saleability. This is where you maximize the saleability of your business. So it's like stage three, but instead of building the implementation team, you're building the management team. And so when somebody goes to buy or invest in a business, they're going to say, all right, who's running this joint? And what are you going to do with the money I give you? And you have to be able to say, why well, this manager, that manager, specifically someone who drives all the leads, a CMO, somebody who converts those leads to sales, director of chief revenue officer or VP of sales, and a director of operations, who's in charge of fulfillment. And you'll know, I didn't say financial director. And the reason why I say that is because that industry is so mature, you can subcontract a fractional CFO. You could do fractional a lot of things, but that is a well-trained very mature market. So yes, you'd want to bring it in under roof at some point, but the first three, first three are leads, sales, fulfillment. You have to have those under one roof and you maximize your sale ability. And then stage seven, we call the succession stage. And that's when a legacy business is born. That's when you can fire employee number one, that's you. And um, you replace it with a CEO somebody who's got vision. And the day that you announce that you're leaving the day-to-day -day operations and somebody else is coming in, the value of the business actually rises. So uh, stage five was franchise type businesses. Stage six is a business that will grow by acquisition like a Facebook or an Amazon or an Uber, that sort of company. And then stage seven will be a legacy business. No one cares who owns it um, or runs it. Microsoft is a good example. Google is on its way there now. And um, I write in the book about this little ice cream shop in the town I grew up in called Curly's Ice Cream, where they're now a fourth generation family owned business since like 1958. People get in line. It's an experience to get in line for your ice cream. The place is <laughs> packed 10 months out of the year in New Jersey. People in November freezing their butts off eating ice cream because Curly's is so much fun to go to. It's so small. You can't even go inside everybody's outside. It's like one of those old school ice cream stands. And, and yet it's one of the local attractions. And, and so uh, that's a stage seven business. And I, I learned that you have to go through those stages in sequence, can't skip a stage, but you could transfer from those growth stages, one through three to the scale stages, four through seven. And then I built my coaching methodology around that. What would you say, and I know it varies at different stages, but if you were to give a couple of some of the, the biggest mistakes you've found, like you mentioned, coaching 100,000 um, different businesses and stuff and bunches of different business coaches, what would you say is some of the biggest mistakes people make along that journey? Well, in the early stages of development, the one big mistake is something like over 90% of the people we meet in the beginning don't have a strategic plan. They don't have a plan. Now, we work with a lot of companies that are already established. So to think that these are successful businesses that still don't have a plan is like mind-boggling. Like, oh mm. my God, where's the plan? Like, oh, it's right here. I got it right here. I'm like, that's good. And that's where it's <laughs> going to stay because no one can read your mind. So since we don't know that the business plan is between your ears, how can I fund your business? How can I partner with your business? There's nothing on paper. Right? So the first one is they don't have a plan. 
Second thing is, is that they forget what business they're in. So every business, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you do, I don't care what your widget is, and this is why you have to at least like what you're doing, is you realize very quickly you are in the marketing business, right? So you have to like what you do enough to do the parts of the businesses that you don't like doing. So, and people ask me all the time, like, girl, I've been in business 20 years. When does like sales get easy? When does marketing get easier? When does it happen where the leads start flow to me? And I could tell you, you could look at it. It's a very specific day. I could point you right to it. And it's almost a hundred percent. And the day is never, <laughs> never, it's never getting easy. It can get somewhat easier. You might have to build some credibility that your close rate gets a little better or that your leads are more productive. But at the end of the day, business world is hyper competitive. And if you're that good, then people are trying to emulate you and knock you off. So you got to be, you have to continue to be good at what you do and you have to continue to improve because if you don't, your customers will notice that you're complacent and they'll go to somebody who's aggressively trying to earn their business. And so it never gets easier. And they don't, and they think like, oh, I marketed, I got a few clients, I can back off now. You cannot. Under no circumstances ever do you stop lead generation for any reason. You can't. It takes too much energy to get it back going again. So you can never take your foot off the gas as it relates to marketing. Even if you want a lifestyle business where you don't have a lot of clients, you market 100%, go full on, get the business to where you want it, then you can tail off. But there's no 50%. 50% is like 0% because the other people there will realize you're not really committed and that's not going to inspire them to want to do work with you. They're right. just not. So you have to keep going on that. The last one is once you have your business going, people fall into this trap where they get into this catch-22 of feast and famine because one of the things that they do is they'll focus too much on, on fulfillment at the sake of biz dev, and then they get into this feast and famine syndrome, like I mentioned. And then the last one is, is they try to do everything on the, by themselves. And so that part comes back to bite them square in the behind every time <laughs> without fail. And so those are the things that I see right out of the gate that are mistakes people make all the time. Yeah. Absolutely. What would you say? I mean, if we're transitioning just a little bit, I'm curious in the role of just kind of leadership in general, you've had massive amounts of experience with this. I'm curious, what are, what would you say are some of the most important traits or characteristics of a leader? Like, what would you say is like top three, top five, these are absolute musts that you need to develop to be an excellent leader? I think you, first and foremost, you need to be resilient. This is the most either energy draining or energy giving thing you'll ever do in your life. By various statistics, one out of about 30 million businesses in the United States for 330 million people. So about one in 10, one in 11 people, all, or there's about one business for every 10 to 11 people, but some owners have more than one company. So there's, a, you know, one in 15-ish people are an entrepreneur. Only 4% of businesses will ever get to be a million dollars or more, right? So that's one in 600 people have a business $1 million or more. So it's a very lonely trade. And the more successful you get, the less people there are to talk to. Mm -hmm. You can't go to your peers as the leader in the industry and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? Because they'll just take it and run with it. I've had mm -hmm. that happen to me many times, mm -hmm. right? And so the longer you're in this, the lonelier it gets and the more you have to be careful about where you're sharing information and who you're talking to. So you need to be very resilient. 
you need to be just unbelievably persistent. You have to hustle your way and you have to be willing to hustle. It's, this is an energy game. If I, I don't have to be, I don't have to be better than you. I just got to get there first, or mm. I got to be willing to do that little extra to earn the bit, the trust of somebody. And that's what it is. And then the, you have to develop communication skills. Some people say you got to learn how to sell. You have to learn to public speak. There's the same base. There's the skill set has the same core competencies. You have to learn the skills of persuasion, not so you can pull the wool over somebody's eyes, but so you can describe in the prospect's language what you're trying to accomplish. So even though I might think I'm a good speaker, if I show up in a room and I talk to myself with other people in the room, I'm not selling <laughs> jack to anybody. But if I, ha I have to be able to walk into a room, whether that's a one-to-one -one or one-to-many, and be able to say, all right, this is a group of men or this is a group of women. This is a group of this age group or that age group or the other age group or this culture or that culture. They need the information packaged in a very, in a specific way. And I need to understand that. And from a genuine place of service, want to help them understand what it is I'm doing and proposing. And if I believe enough in my product or service that they that they are better off with me than without me. I feel like I've got an obligation to get that point across so they can say, yes, I want to engage in whatever it is you're doing. So you have to have resilience. You have to be persistent and you have to be able to communicate. I've got a couple of clients that are immigrants to the United States and they have really strong accents and I've encouraged them to take English lessons, not to lose the accent, but to be able to articulate and communicate better because they're brilliant. And I'm like, I got to be honest, the main thing I'm noticing you losing out is it's hard for me to understand what you're saying. I think it's hard for the prospect to understand what you're saying. I just don't mm. think they can hear you. It would be like me going into a foreign country, not knowing their language and doing my best to cobble together a sentence. I could be the most brilliant guy in the world, but if I can't communicate with the audience, I'm not going to get very far. Yeah. So if I've got those three elements in place, willing to hustle, I'll be resilient. I'll get back up every time you knock me down and I communicate what I'm trying to accomplish. I got a good shot here. Yeah. I want to dive into that a little bit um, more, especially on the communication side of things. How do you go about doing, I mean, whether it's market research, whether it's for public speaking, whatever you're talking about, how do you go about doing the, the research on the front end to know this is what the package of this communication would look like best in a way that would be received best by this certain group of people? So there are a couple of things in there, but I, the way I would unpack that first is I would look at, I would go, if I was going to give a, a keynote presentation, for example, one of the things that I would do is I would research that group. If there's individuals, I'll go to their LinkedIn profile or their Facebook or other social media, find out what their interests are. What are some of their buzzwords? Because what I want to do is I want to emulate, I want to mirror to the extent that I can how they move, what they say, and how they say it, right? What do you mean how they move? Well, there's a bunch of runners and they're long distance runners. They move differently than sprinters do, meaning they will have certain belief systems and rules about life and about their business and they'll share that. So how they move or what they wear, or if I'm going to give a presentation to a group of contractors, I might not wear a suit that day. But if I go to meet, if I go to a banking conference and I give a, if I give a, a keynote to a bunch of bankers, I might not show up in shorts and flip-flops that day. I want to dress appropriately. I want to look the part. I want to act the part without sacrificing who I am, but just 
being respectful enough to try to attempt to speak their language. And, and I want to understand their phraseology. What are some of the terms or the acronyms that they use? Because if I even attempt to speak their language, they'll pick up on that. And even if I make a mistake, they'll say, we appreciate the effort. You're not even close. We appreciate the effort. And uh, I remember one of the things I said once at a conference, I was uh, asked to give a presentation at a conference for rabbis and I'm Catholic, but they asked me to talk about a specific performance topic. And I joked with them and I said, and I'm from New Jersey. So um, New, New York, New Jersey area is a high Jewish population. And so, so I was giving the talk in Brooklyn and I joked with them and I said, do you realize you asked a Catholic to come speak to you all? And they <laughs> laughed. And I said, don't worry. I've been practicing my oy vey really the whole week. And they laughed and I do a terrible oy vey, right? But they, but just the fact that I tried, they were like, good on you. That's cool. Don't even try Hebrew. Don't even, don't even pretend all of the things that we, we don't need you to do that. But the attempt was appreciated. If I go speak in another country and I use some of their terminology, some of their slang, or I attempt to, they appreciate that. I mean, at least making the effort. And the last thing is how they do it, right? I'm from New Jersey. New Yorkers probably speak at the fastest pace of just about anywhere in the world with the possible exception of Nigeria. In all seriousness, I went to Nigeria and they said, you're talking slower. I've seen your talk. You talk faster. I'm like, well, I'm from New York, New Jersey area. They're like, we're just as fast as you New Yorkers go. And I said, really? So I picked up the pace and they were like, yes, keep it coming. We, they speak at a rapid rate like New Yorkers do. So, but in other parts of the world, I will modulate my pace a little bit more and I'll slow down a bit because in New York and New Jersey, especially we speak a million miles an hour. So, so what I'll do is I'll research. I want to know their rules, their belief systems, their culture. And understand to the best of my ability, and how can I adapt and customize the my my presentation to to that? Yeah, absolutely. Really appreciate that. It's very well laid out. The other thing that that you mentioned, and this is something I talk about with my my guests a lot, is the idea around the loneliness of entrepreneurship that you talked about. It's a very real thing, and like you mentioned, can be very isolating both because your family and friends might not understand what the heck you're doing. And then also the higher you go, like you mentioned, you can't be talking to these. There's like a vertical loneliness and a horizontal loneliness. So what is your advice to entrepreneurs about how to actually work through that? Like, what did that look like for you? And what would you tell entrepreneurs in that category? Yeah. So I'm obviously a big believer in coaching and mentoring. So if you are somebody in a high position and you don't have a coach, that's a mistake. You deal with such high-end challenges that very few people understand. I spend a good portion of just about every coaching session for the last 30 plus years talking about the things that they can't talk to anybody else about. Mm -hmm. So you really should have a coach. You need to talk to somebody who's done what you've done, who understands it, who can relate to you, and who won't take your BS, right? Mm -hmm. Because part of the isolation is the fact that when you're a business leader, nobody tells you no, right. right? I When I'm talking to my team, I've not had a bad idea in 32 years. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I, according to the, oh, great idea. I hire a marketing agency like, oh, what a good idea. I'm like, wait a minute. How can every idea I have be the best idea in the world? I'm the lay person. I don't know what the hell's going on. But apparently I have every good idea on the planet. So my vendors, my employees, my 
direct reports. Everything I do is a good idea. So as a CEO, it gets harder and harder to know who to trust Mm. because no one will tell you no, right? So you need a coach or I don't care what you want to call that person. Somebody who can tell you three things. One, when you're making a mistake. Mm. Two, and more importantly, when you're getting it right. Because CEOs tell me all the time, I had no idea that was going well. I didn't know there was a lag between the activity and the result. And the third thing is tell them no, because nobody tells them no in their life. Right now. So coach, always a good idea. You got to have a sounding board. And then I would find a peer group, a forum, a council, a board, a mastermind group, somebody where like-minded individuals who will challenge you are there because only they can relate to what they can relate to what you're doing. It's my experience with CEOs is that oftentimes they are among, if not the most successful person in their family. Mm-hmm. So they can't really go to their family, can't come home and tell their kids about <laughs> it. Their spouse probably doesn't, in most cases, not part of the business. And if they are, you've probably set the ground rules that work is work time. We come home. We don't talk about work. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a family run business and your spouse or your partner is in the business, You've probably laid out the ground rules that you don't talk business at the dinner table. You don't talk business during pillow talk. And so you come home and it's a rule you can't talk. If your spouse is not involved in the business, at least you'll come home and say, well, here's my day. Here's how it went. Da, da, da. But if you're in business together, you guys likely avoid that conversation. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just that's the way it usually goes. Mm-hmm. The more successful as a CEO, the more vital for your business health and your mental health that you seek out somebody who can relate to you. That is an emotionally neutral third party to your business or to your position. And that is your best path. And by doing that, like you can read the books, obviously read the books, surround yourself with positive people, do personal development, all of those things. But as a must, like you got to tick the box. You're a CEO. You got to be in a mastermind forum or other council and you got to have a coach. Absolutely. I agree 100% with that. So as we start to wrap up here, I like just asking at the end, I'd love to hear how would you define success? How do I define success? I define success as living a life by design and the ability to engineer what you do, who you do it with, how you're doing. So as long as you've chosen your path and it's a path you've chosen and you are taking control of your destiny, and pursuing your goals, whatever material comes out of that is fine. But I've lived both lives. I've lived the life where the business ran me and I've lived the life where I run the business. And I can tell you, regardless of the dollar amount, I am much more successful in this business because I'm choosing my path. Yeah. No, I agree with that a lot. I like that. Obviously, the name of the podcast and my company is Success Engineering for that very exact reason. It's going like you have to one, intentionally define what you want with success, how that would you know feel in your life and then engineer it. Like there are frameworks, there are systems that will actually get you there. And then you can talk to incredible people like yourself and the other guests that 
have been there and go, these are frameworks that will get you there. This is proven with hundreds of thousands of people. So I really love that intentionality. You're designing it, you're engineering it, there's frameworks, and then you're you're going, who do I want to actually spend the time with as well? So appreciate that definition. So where can people go to connect up with you if they're looking at getting a hold of you or, or doing coaching and stuff with you? Sure. Uh, Carl at carlgould.com is my email address. carlgould.com is, is my website. And my personal website is carl360, C-A-R-L 360.com. Excellent. And I'll put the links to, to that in the show notes. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight. It's been very helpful and very practical. So thank you very much for that. Thanks. Glad you enjoyed it. Absolutely. Before you go, I would love it if you actually just shared this episode with a friend. I'm sure while you were listening, someone just popped in their head and you're like, oh, they would probably like this as well. So it's really easy. You just click the share button on either the website or whatever podcast platform you're on and send it over to them. And chances are they'll probably like it too. Until next time, keep engineering your success.